Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, online nutritionist, weight loss coach, and hormone fixer-upper. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of information and inspiration, sharing with you simple and effective strategies from health, wealth, and all things personal growth. Get ready to become the master of your hormones and experience vibrant health to live a life of more power and possibility. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you guys are doing amazing. I am sitting here sipping on my blueberry hormone detox smoothie. It is so delicious. And I've put in two cups of coconut milk, a quarter cup of wild frozen blueberries, which I am totally obsessed with. Wild frozen blueberries are so great because they contain tons of antioxidants, but they're really great for inflammation and for anybody that is dealing with any autoimmune issues. And so I always keep them frozen in my freezer. I typically will stock up like in the summer months, like the August months when they're pretty available, and I'll just stock up and then, you know, wash them and throw them into my freezer and keep them there all winter long. And then I've thrown in about one third cup of frozen cauliflower. And if you're thinking gross, trust me, it does not change the flavor of your smoothie whatsoever. And it actually gives it this really nice frothiness. And of course you get lots of amazing minerals and vitamins and fiber. And trust me, it doesn't change anything about your smoothie. You would not even know it's in there. And cauliflower is amazing because you're getting all that great fiber, which is essential for detoxification, but you are also getting a lot of I3C, indole-3-carbonyl, which is great for supporting liver detoxification and detoxing out excess estrogen. So this is why it's a blueberry hormone detox smoothie, and it's quite delicious. I've also put in a tablespoon of tiger nut butter. I've added in a scoop of collagen powder and also about half a scoop of MCT oil powder from Perfect Ketones. I use the vanilla one. It's actually really great. I really love using the MCT oil powder because especially with traveling, I will throw a scoop of it into my thermos, I'll head to the airport, and then once I'm past security, I just head on over to like a Starbucks, fill up my thermos with some coffee, and then give it a shake, and I've got this delicious frothy elixir and this frothy coffee that it's great to travel with because it can be a little messy when you're traveling with coconut oil. So the MCT oil powder is a really great option. If you guys haven't tried any of the Perfect Keto products, I do have a community discount code. So you can save 15% off your order. And if you haven't tried anything, then you'll definitely want to take advantage of using the discount code. So you can save 15%. Just enter holistic wellness at checkout. Head on over to perfectketo.com and check out some of their amazing products. I also use their collagen. I've used their exogenous ketones. You do not have to be on a keto diet to try their products. I'm not on a keto diet. I do a bit of a modified keto and AIP diet, and I just really like using their products. So definitely check them out. And now... Let's dive into our amazing episode. I'm so excited to interview my dear friend, Megan Taupner. She is a Toronto-based author, speaker, nutritionist, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. She's written two best-selling books, Undiet, Eat Your Way to Vibrant Health, and The Undiet Cookbook. 
Megan's success in cultivating a global community of undiet enthusiasts and culinary nutrition experts has garnered her features in Forbes and ranking her as one of the top 100 female entrepreneurs in Canada. And she's definitely a entrepreneur rock star. You can definitely visit Megan over at her website at megantelpner.com. And today we are chatting all things pre and post conception. Megan shares openly about her experience with a miscarriage. And we really talk about what preconception planning looks like and what that's all about and how that actually starts right now. Yes, preconception planning starts now. Whether you are 15 or 40, you are going to want to hear this. We also chat about all things on diet and so much more. And just as a note, we did experience a little bit of audio issues. Of course, we're bound to get some tech issues at some point. And so we did have a little bit of audio issues and a little bit of cutting in and cutting out. And I also found that sometimes there was this delay as I was asking questions and her answering, but my editor worked really hard on fixing it all up. But just in case you hear a few little glitches, that is why. So let's get started and dive into my interview with Megan Telpner. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I am so excited to have you here and to chat. But before we dive into all things undiet, I would love for you to share with our audience who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Megan Tiltner. I'm a nutritionist, culinary nutrition expert, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. As you alluded to, I've also written a couple of books on diet and the Undiet Cookbook. That's a summary. My official title, like on my emails, is Chief of Awesome. And basically, what I aim to do is empower people to become their own best health expert through information and asking tough questions and doing some research and really helping people find their own unique path to their optimal health. That's awesome. So how did you find your own unique path to optimal health? I was like many of us, I had my own health issues and autoimmune condition, which you know a thing or two about. So I was diagnosed back in 2006 with Crohn's disease and had no inclination to want to be in the health field or really know how my body worked because most people don't until it breaks. And that was what propelled me to figure things out and figure out what I could do when the medical system had no answers and still has no answers for people. I've been told it was a lifelong disease. And so that was really how I ended up exploring from the basics. And again, this was 2006. There weren't an abundance of blogs, but there weren't books on this topic. So it was really exploring foods that could help and foods that could potentially exacerbate the condition and creating something of a diet to follow and then making the maybe the toughest part, which is the major lifestyle transitions. And that was what helped me regain my health and put me on this path to help others get to where they want to be and really fulfill on their potential. So it's been a work in progress. And I know we're going to talk about pregnancy and all that stuff that I've been through and it continues. And that's why I sort of jokingly said, I'll let you know when I get there. It's, I don't think you're ever at a place where you're like, oh, I'm in perfect health. Like I'm set now for the rest of my life. It is an ongoing opportunity to continuously reevaluate what's working, what's not working and finding what will work for us today and hopefully tomorrow. But then like anything beyond that, we may have to make some adjustments. 
Absolutely. It's always like a trial and error and there's always ups and downs and having to reset and 100%. And so you've started the Undiet Revolution. And what is this really all about? The premise of Undiet came about because my publisher contacted me about doing a book and they wanted a diet book, like a program. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to do that because what if I realized five years from now that the program I had put out there wasn't going to work? And I said, you know, my premise is that it's not up to me to decide what everyone else should eat. I can provide the information and let them make the decisions that work for their lifestyles. And that was sort of how the premise of Undiet came about, which was the opposite of what everything a diet is supposed to be. So it was breaking down why calories don't count, looking at the micronutrients. So how much value are we getting in every bite of food we eat versus the macros, the proteins and fats and carbs and balancing that stuff because you can get that in any kind of form. And then looking at you know, the things that we really should never have that don't build our health, that are on the disease building side of things, you know, the artificial sweeteners and monosodium glutamate and the bad fats, like the trans fats and the processed fats and the oxidized foods and fats and all of those elements so that we're looking at not so much the things we can't have, but really the abundance of what we can have. And then ultimately letting the reader or the undieter determine what foods and what dietary style works with their own personal values and philosophies. And so everything I do is completely inclusive, whether someone chooses that vegan is right for them today or that someone is paleo or keto today. That's not for me to decide unless they're actually seeking my one-to-one guidance. But in most cases, if we can be honest with ourselves, we can choose the ultimate, what I call undiet, which is really just looking at a lifestyle of health. So I can only imagine what that conversation was like with your publisher when they wanted a diet book and you went to undiet. I think that made them realize what it was going to be like working with me. (laughs) It's like, if you try and give me a set of rules, I'm going to have to break them. 100%. I love that. So I know that in the years that I've known you and what I know about you is that you just don't take things so seriously, hence the undiet. I love that. And so what I really mean by that is that you have this really lighthearted and fun way of being. And where did that come from? Well, I think it came over the last decade of finding my place and finding true joy in the work that I feel privileged to do and in the life that I have worked very hard to create. And so, yes, we have fun. And I say we, and it's my husband, Josh and I, and we are silly. And I try and bring humor and personality or humanness into my work. But I think that comes from just as I've grown older and gained confidence in what I do getting comfortable with who I am. I think there's always been a little bit, you know, when I worked in advertising, people used to make fun of my outfits that I came to work dressed like Punky Brewster. And I think that there's always been that element that, you know, this is our life, let's have fun. But I do also take my work very seriously. And not everything is a joke to me or by any means. But I think that if we can bring humor and fun and joy into the process of living our lives, that's beyond half the battle towards feeling good inside and out. Absolutely. And let's be honest, like no one's going to want to play along if it's like totally boring and rigid and yeah. 
100%. If it's all seriousness, then no, you're not going to get people on board for sure. So how has your diet transitioned over the years? How has your diet gone from diet to undiet? <laughs> well, it was interesting. And, and I've never attached myself to a label. And I say labels are for tin cans. I'm grateful I never like tattooed a diet of choice onto my body. It was funny. There was like, there was this guy that I had like a thing for who was at all the health shows. He worked for a certain, this might, if anyone has ever met him, they'll know who he is, but he had the word vegan tattooed across the back of his neck. I know exactly who he is. And I'm like, could that actually be updated to say Megan? Like, could that work? I know who you're (laughs) talking about. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So when I started modifying my diet, when I was first developing symptoms of Crohn's, I could even go further than that. Like when I was 15 and I was diagnosed with dysthemia type of depression, I had like gone to the library because that's all there was when I was 15. There was no internet. Well, there was, but like I wasn't there yet. And I read that gluten can contribute to depression. I don't know where I read that, what book it was. I eliminated gluten in 1995 and felt better immediately. So for a long time, I was gluten-free and then that sort of fell by the wayside. And then I went to university and like at that point, a gourmet meal was like adding banana to my Rice Krispies and milk. And then after university and I went traveling in Africa and getting all my vaccines and then I started getting really sick and started modifying my diet. And so it became gluten-free and dairy-free and coffee-free and alcohol-free because I knew those things were directly affecting me. I would eat them and I would get sick. And so it evolved and evolved. And while I was healing from Crohn's in the spring of 2006 or fall, I wasn't eating like a paleo diet. And like, there's no one had heard of autoimmune paleo. Like no one knew it. I was eating a whole foods-based diet. I was eating brown rice. I was eating fish and chicken and soup. And basically my premise was that I was eating 100% from scratch, things that I prepared in my own kitchen. I don't even think I really knew about organic yet, but I was just shopping at the health food store and I was just trying to get unprocessed foods. And then after nutrition school, I somehow came out of it thinking that vegan was the healthiest way to eat. And Josh, my husband, went to the same program. And I'm like, how come they get that same impression? He's like, I never saw the evidence. The evidence didn't support it. So I was predominantly what I would call vegan or what most would call vegan for a long time. And then what happened? I was in a car accident and my nervous system wasn't recovering. And then having never had a cavity in my life, I suddenly, within the span of two years, had 11 cavities. And then I was carrying extra weight, like an extra 15 pounds. I'm five feet tall, so that's substantial. And still exercising, doing everything. And like, but I was having these massive bowls of oatmeal full of like all this stuff, coconut oil and almond butter and all these things. And then was hungry the entire day. So slowly I was like, wait a second, I don't know if this is working. And then when Josh and I got married, I was like, I don't know what came over me, but I'm like, I'm going to be a good wife and I'm going to make him meatballs for dinner. And so I made him these meatballs and I had never cooked with meat because I learned to cook when I was on a predominantly plant-based diet. And so I made him these meatballs. I thought I should try one. And then I couldn't stop eating them. And I ate half a dozen meatballs and had not had meat in like five years. And then I just, I was good. I was like, I don't need it for a while. And then slowly I started adding some meat proteins back in. And then it was actually leading up to my wedding when I started developing eczema on my face that I cut out grains and really started looking at all the blood sugar balance and all these things you know we know about with hormonal balance and how our diet affects it. 
And so it's just been an ongoing evolution from there. When we were preconception planning, we went like strict paleo to just stabilize all blood sugar, hormone levels, everything before becoming pregnant. And I stuck with it as much as I could. I looked pretty sick while I was pregnant. So sometimes all I could eat was noodles. But yeah, and then it just keeps evolving. And and I feel like we've landed at a place that today it feels very balanced and you know, I feel great. So that's where I am today. That's awesome. And that's quite the journey. And it's funny, I've actually had many friends and even my cousin recently, she was a vegan for many years. And then when she got pregnant, she started craving meat like crazy. And it was just this like thing that overcame her and she couldn't stop. I hear that so often. And I was actually interviewed for a podcast that was never aired because I didn't know the host was a vegan and had suffered severely with postpartum depression. And I think they're related. I believe that women crave meat when they're pregnant if they're vegan and hopefully they follow what they feel is best for them and their child. Right. People have healthy vegan pregnancies. I know a few who have, but if your body is asking for something and then there's like the heavy intensive workouts people do while they're pregnant and immediately postpartum, which is also problematic. But if you're not getting the fats that you need and animal-based foods are often the easiest way to get high volume of protein and fat, it can be really challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's important not to deny what your body is naturally trying to communicate to you 100%. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd love to chat about preconception. You've noted it there. And even before diving into that, I know that as you were trying to get pregnant, you did have a miscarriage. And I really appreciate you being open and honest and really sharing the story. I know you put a blog post up about it. And I know it's in sharing our stories, it really helps to support other women on their journeys too. So I'm so grateful for you for sharing that. And so can you talk about that experience and what happened? Yeah. So we did our like two years of preconception planning basically, and then an intensive two months before we're like, I don't know what the term is, pulling the goalie. I don't know. Is that appropriate? (laughs) Anyway, I became pregnant instantly. It was almost like too soon. I was like, like, I just want one more dinner of oysters. I want one more glass of wine. And I felt so awful almost immediately and not just physically, but emotionally. And you and I have talked about, you know, what it means bringing a child into your life and how it changes your life. And I suddenly got overwhelmed with anxiety that this was a terrible mistake, that I was not meant to be a mother, that I didn't want to do this, that I didn't want to go through it, that I was happy with how my life was. I was happy with my business. I was happy with my marriage. I didn't want anything to change. And there was like this overwhelming feeling of anxiety through that first pregnancy. And I was spotting the entire time, which if you're pregnant and you're spotting, that doesn't mean anything is wrong, but it was happening to me. And there was something about it that to me, I felt so unsettled. And then at 11 weeks, like a switch went off and I felt amazing. And I was like, oh, okay. The worst is over. I can do this. And three days later, I miscarried. And so what must have happened at that point was that the fetus must have lost its heartbeat or whatever may have happened. And that's probably why I felt better because it was no longer consuming all of my (laughs) energy and nutrients. Right. And so the day that I miscarried, I gone to work and I was walking home and I was sort of feeling a little achy. And I looked, I Googled it 
as you do. And mm-hmm. it was like that you can feel this pain with the uterus expanding. I was like, oh, that must be it. I'm almost through the first trimester. And that wasn't it. And around 9.30 at night, we were lying on the couch and I was like really cramping and really uncomfortable. And we got up to go to bed and I just felt like this rush of fluid and ran to the toilet. And it was first clear fluid, which is the amniotic fluid. And then we called the midwife and she's like, it sounds like you're having a miscarriage. And I was shocked. Like it wasn't even a possibility of something that was going to happen. And it's different when you're in the medical world. I think they warn you a lot more heavily. The midwife never really, it wasn't mentioned. It wasn't mentioned to us at all. And I had what is considered a textbook miscarriage at 11 weeks and five days. It was devastating. And I didn't think I would care so much. And I don't know if so much of it, it's part of the devastation is that you envision your life unfolding in a certain way. Like you have this date of when this baby's to arrive. And then you have the devastation of your hormones suddenly in complete flux. And for a month, we'd be like on our way somewhere and I would burst into tears and be like, I have to go home. And like, I mean, you know me, I don't like going out the best of times. Like I'm not a highly social extroverted person, but I just didn't want to leave the house. It just so happened that the day after my miscarriage, it happened on a Wednesday, Friday, we packed up and moved out of our house for a renovation. <laughs> so it was a lot. It was a lot all at once. And then I had one cycle and my friend Nadine of Living Libations, we were at their place and she's like, well, you know, now you don't have to worry. Like you can just be free and easy. I'm like, okay. And then I got pregnant immediately. So six weeks after my miscarriage, I was pregnant again, like clockwork. Yeah. And I often hear that, that it does happen pretty quickly after the first miscarriage. Yes. So there's no studies on this because it's not ethical. And the statistics say that there's a 25% miscarriage rate, I think from what I've been told and what people have said and every woman I know who emailed me saying, oh, I had a miscarriage before both of my children, before I was pregnant with both of my children. So I believe the percentage is substantially higher. I believe that because most women are in their first trimester, so no one knows they're pregnant, no one knows they had a miscarriage. And I think many don't go reported. You know, A lot of women don't go to their doctor in their first trimester or if they're with a midwife, does that get fully, I mean, it probably does here in Ontario, but there's different guidelines in different states and provinces. There's no research on it because it would not be ethical to do so through anecdotal evidence. It seems that a miscarriage is incredibly common before sustaining a healthy pregnancy, not in all cases. But Josh, my husband, who's a clinical nutritionist, he suspects that there's something about it that prepares the womb for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Just from all the stories that I have heard, it makes sense. And so you mentioned earlier two years of preconception prep. Yes. And I'm so happy you said that because I see a lot of women in my practice that want to get pregnant. And typically I get on a call with them and the conversation goes something along the lines of them being on the pill. They want to get pregnant in the next year. They're thinking about getting off the pill in the next few months. They don't have any type of nutrition protocol or anything in place. They just want to get off the pill and get started. And I have to spend a lot of time really explaining the process to them of nutritionally supporting their body, detoxing out the synthetic hormones, and that it's a process that should not be rushed. 
And so can you speak to those two years of preconception planning? Yes. And what that really looks like. Yes. So I wrote a blog post about this. I can't think of the title off the top of my head. It's something about preconception planning, when to start, what to do, why it matters. I think that's actually it. But the time to start preconception planning is today. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you're 15 or you're 25 or you're 35, if you want to have children in your lifetime, you have to start now. And this is for so many reasons. We know the pill is completely toxic and will mess with your hormones potentially for the rest of your life unless you take active measures to clean up the damage that they do nutrient-wise and hormonally-wise. The other component is the toxic load we carry in our body. And women, the most effective way that they detox is through the placenta into their unborn child. And so the least amount of chemicals that end up in your body, the less work you have to do immediately before becoming pregnant. So when I say we started two years in advance, it was two years that we sort of knew the timing of when we wanted to have a child. But 10 years ago, I cleaned up all my cosmetic products and stopped using conventional tampons and all these other toxic things that are part of our life. In 2015, when we moved into our house, we became very conscious about the mattress we were sleeping on, the sofa we purchased, what our carpets were made of, what our blinds were made of. And that inspired the course we offer called Healthy at Home, which was really about how do we reduce the toxic load in our home, which is the studies show five to 10 times more toxic than the outside air. We bought a sauna. So we started using infrared sauna regularly to help offset the toxins we're exposed to in our everyday lives. And eating organic food, which is the simplest thing you need to do. Like, don't start once you become pregnant. With women, the eggs are there. Like, they are percolating in whatever soup we're cooking inside our bodies. So, choosing organic food and low chemical food and low preservatives and really cleaning all of that up. Because you need those practices in place when you become pregnant. That is not the time to overhaul your lifestyle. You're exhausted in most cases and you're planning for this new human to come. And then this new human comes into your life and that's not the time to start changing up your lifestyle practices. Your baby is going to be living in your home environment. And for the first six months, that's pretty much the only place that baby is going to be. And that's not the time to start buying new furniture. That's the time to ensure that your furniture, anything you have is already fully off-gassed or that optimally you're buying responsible options. So that preconception planning, unfortunately, most couples decide they want to get pregnant. And like all things in our current world, they want instant gratification. They want instant results from their efforts. And the reality is that when people are having fertility issues too quickly, they're going for IVF because that has a higher rate of perceived success because you don't really have to do much to have that work versus conceiving completely, you know, the old fashioned way takes time to rebalance your body and nature knows and takes care of us. And we don't know what the result is of the generations produced through IVF. It's like Pottinger's cats. I believe it was the third generation. The cats stopped multiplying. They stopped being able to have more kittens. Right. So you kind of have to wonder what the result is. Hopefully it's fine. Hopefully it's all good, but it's an experiment. 100%. So cleaning up and detoxing and then establishing a healthy microbiome. You know, the microbiome of our gut is the first 
microbiome of our child. And if we can establish that in the most solid way possible, it sets our children up for success. And if we're pregnant with girls, it's our grandchildren as well. Because when a female child is in utero, all her eggs are produced right there inside of us. So it's not just for ourselves. It's basically for the future generation of the planet. And that's what we're planning for. And that's what we need to account for. And the other component that I wanted to mention, because I don't know if you wanted to ask about this, but we didn't have the birth we had planned. We ended up in the hospital and Finn ended up in the NICU for a week on IV drips of dextrose and antibiotics. And Today, you know, he's almost a year old. He will, by the time this airs, he is a resilient little man. And I believe his recovery from the emergency birth that he had and fighting off the infection and everything that helped him recover so fast was a big part of the little organic boutique hotel that I incubated him in for 42 weeks in a day. That's so cute. Yes, he is a thriving little man. He is so super cute. And actually, at the time of this recording, I get to see him, I think, in like another week, which is really great. I love seeing all the photos you post of him online. And we were just joking earlier that he's kind of like this paleo cave baby, which is so cute. All the amazing foods that that you're feeding him. Okay. So we spoke about this pre-pregnancy prep. And I mean, it really is a huge responsibility that I think women and men need to just really take more seriously. And so outside of preconception prep... You know, you use the word responsibility. And to me, it's like, if you're bringing a human into the world, the least you can do is get the toxins out of your life. Yep. Like, if that's too much for you, then maybe consider whether you should be bringing a human into the world. Honestly, like this might seem harsh, but it's the reality. Absolutely. I appreciate your honesty with that because it really is a reality. And I think oftentimes when I'm having this conversation with a lot of potential clients and prospects, they kind of do look at me like I have three heads. And I'm just like, no, like it really does take time and it's a process you cannot rush and let's do it the right way. Yeah. So what would you say to women who are like, I can't afford organics? Give up your cell phone first? I don't know. Like (laughs) the thing is, what if organic food wasn't labeled organic, but everything else was labeled chemically grown? Like, would that make a difference? Right. We have the funds. In North America, we spend the least amount of our salary on food compared with most European major cities. Why aren't we valuing our food for what it is? So let's buy less clothes. Let's drive our car less often. Let's you know, not buy takeaway coffees or go for mani petties or get our hair dyed or, you know, there's so many overconsumptive habits that we have that could easily free up, you know, the 20% more or, you know, maybe it's not even that much. Right. The statistic is that 30% of our produce that we buy at the store gets thrown out. So, Organic food isn't expensive, but it is if you're throwing 30% of it away. So if you're throwing away 30% of the produce you buy, there is your organic budget right there. And all you need to do is prep your vegetables so that you actually eat them all instead of throw them out. Absolutely. Yes. It's really hard for me to... like. Absolutely. If you have six children, it's going to be hard to feed everyone 100% organic. But then maybe there's 
market shares you can do and you know, grow some of your own food and cook from scratch. And there are ways, and I believe it is one of the most important things that we can invest in, investing in our current health and on our future health. 100%. Yeah. And I appreciate your honesty with that. It really is true. There's so many things that we're spending our money on that is so useless. And I think ultimately for a lot of people, it's just that the value of their health just isn't a huge priority. And that's a fact. And we need to start taking it more seriously. So you spoke about preconception prep. So what about during pregnancy? What were some essentials that you needed to have in place? Oh my goodness. I had the best of intentions. And I hear stories about women like, (laughs) they couldn't eat greens while they were pregnant. I'm like, oh, come on. I couldn't eat greens while I was pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Like if there was a Brussels sprout, like if someone was eating Brussels sprouts on my block, I was like, I had to move to a new city. Like I had such strong aversions to any brassicas, vegetables, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. I still can't eat a lot of them. Like it's taken some time to come back. So I was really just trying to do my best and feel confident that I had a solid foundation. And it was really, it was a four month period that I was like very had very strong aversions to a lot of foods. And during that time, I loaded up on bone broth. I made smoothies and had smoothies when I could. I had a lot of ghee. So I was having ghee and tea and elixirs and coconut oil. So I was getting that fat in. And I was able to eat cheese. So I ate a lot of raw cheese. I think they tell pregnant women not to eat raw cheese, but they don't tell pregnant women not to eat Doritos, right? Or McDonald's. Yep. <laughs> so I ate a lot of cheese and I ate a lot of like brown rice pasta with olive oil and salt. So it was just what I could get in for the most part. And then on the days that I felt good, I made sure that I was really mindful and high dosed the nutrient dense foods. And I was still, I was taking my multis and my EFAs and really doing the best I could. There was literally a week where all I wanted to eat was white potatoes. And so all I (laughs) ate was white potatoes mashed. I made them into pancakes. I roasted them. Like all I wanted was potatoes. And I, so Josh, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm like, it's still a vegetable, right? (laughs) But that was really the worst it got. I mean, I would be asked like, don't you get cravings? And like, sure, I got cravings. But at the end of the day, what I was eating was the fuel to grow a human. So if I was having a craving for like gummy candies, they were just not an option. Right. If I was craving French fries, I did not eat any processed fats like that while I was pregnant. So it just was not an option. And so looking at what the options were, I worked within that. And that was the choice that I made for me. Women have to do what what makes sense and what feels right for them. Right. And then how has that now shifted for post-conception with your diet? Well, now immediately postpartum, I was just loading up on as much. I couldn't eat enough food. So I was nursing as if women are nursing. No one has told me that it's every three hours around the clock. I don't know what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and when the baby's that little, like you're nursing literally for you know anywhere from a half hour to an hour every three hours. And it, the timer doesn't start when they finish. It starts when they start. Right. 
So you basically are nursing for an hour. You have two hours to sleep or do whatever you need to do. And then you're nursing again for another hour. Right. So I couldn't get enough food into my face. And I was making really, really nutrient dense smoothies with just tons of fat. And Josh was often making them so I could like be nursing and drinking that at the same time. I was eating liver pates and just a lot of the most nutrient dense foods because I was so tired that I rarely felt hungry, but knew I needed to keep eating. And I ended up losing a lot of weight very, very fast, um, partly because I spent the first week in, in the hospital with Finn. So I had no appetite and just wasn't really thinking about food. But it's good to keep on a little bit of that weight just because it helps sustain you through nursing and having that extra resilience. And as Finn has been nursing less and eating more food, I think I'm back to how I was eating before for the most part. And so let's talk about your little man, Finn, because I know you've got him on like quite the diet right now and he's eating such an array and variety of foods. It's awesome. So what are you actually feeding him? What does his diet look like? Yeah. So Sam, one of the things that was said to us so often before we had our baby was, or even while I was pregnant, but it'd be like, you'll see. Oh, you'll see. You have all these intentions. You'll see. Right. So he's almost one and maybe we'll still see. I don't know. But... <laughs> His first foods were bone broth and egg yolk. He had a very strong reaction to egg yolk, so he's not had eggs since then. Egg yolk always seemed to me like a little bit of a strange first food just because it is an allergen typically, and he was allergic to it. Right. We slowly introduced some pureed meats and pureed vegetables, and there's like a huge push sort of in the more traditional diets with babies of doing baby-led weaning or baby-led feeding where you give them food and let them just find their way <laughs> to eating it. Finn was gagging pretty hard for a long time and just never felt right for me. So we did purees for a long time, but it wasn't just you know, like pureed apple or pureed banana. We never did a pureed fruit. So we were doing pureed sweet potato with coconut oil and cinnamon and turmeric and cardamom. I was doing pureed like turnips with cumin and turmeric. And so really, and I have a whole list of them because I figured I'd forget and using ghee and tallow and duck fat. So pureeing with these fats and with spices pretty much from the start so that he'd get used to different tastes. It's amazing. So when did you start using these foods? I started the purees around six months, I think. I started bone broth and maybe a few purees a little bit earlier because every time he nursed, he was crying after like I wasn't producing enough milk to sustain him because he's a big boy. And I knew that he needed more food intuitively. And so I started with just small amounts. But after six months, we sort of brought in a lot of the root vegetables and pureed livers we did, pureed organ meats. And then as he developed, you know, as he could sit up straighter, as his first few teeth came in and a lot of these other signs that he was ready to start chewing food, we started giving him liver cut up into pieces, which breaks down and crumbles pretty easily and roasted sweet potatoes, different types of roasted vegetables. When we first gave him a banana, I think it was around eight months, he lost his mind. And that was the first like straight up fruit he was having. And even now when we give him breakfast, we'll give him a steamed apple with cinnamon and we'll douse it in coconut oil. So there's always a fat with it. Right. And now he like his, oh my goodness, if you give him a drumstick, he's like, bam, bam. He will <laughs> like gnaw on that bone till there's nothing left on it. And so you're just now, so he's at a year and we're just now at the point where like he'll eat 
often what we're eating. So if we have, you know, rainbow trout with, I made like a chimichurri, so a mix of herbs on it and some steamed broccoli and some sweet potato fries. He'll eat all of that and loves it. We make him burgers, different types of patties. So with elk and venison and bison meats and then mixing in onions and garlic and some herbs and he'll like, we'll give him a patty and he'll eat that. So that's where we're at. So he's not had any grains, lentils, beans, peas. He hasn't had any of that. He's had a huge variety of fruits, some berries, not strawberries yet, no citrus yet. And all kinds of meats, fish, and lots and lots of vegetables. Oh, and fermented foods. That was another early food was sauerkraut juice. Yes. And he loved it. He makes a wiggle, but he loves it. And then we started (laughs) adding in like chopped sauerkraut and we'll give him pickles now. We've tried olives, but they're a little, I think, too strong a taste for him still. Yeah. I remember seeing the video of him drinking the sauerkraut juice or it was the pickle juice or something like that. It's so cute. It was a gut shot, whatever it was. Recently, just started giving him mushrooms, like shiitake mushrooms, which he's not so into, but I think it's a texture thing. Right. Sometimes it takes time for him to get used to a new texture of something. And imagine like if someone's putting something in your mouth and you have no idea what it is, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to taste like. So we just keep trying things and seeing what sticks. That's awesome. That is such a variety. So you mentioned earlier how people were saying like, oh, you'll see. You'll see when you feed him. Like as in he's not going to eat these foods or... As in you'll see, you'll have goldfish crackers on his high chair tray. Uh, got it. Yep. Nope. Not the case. People say like, my kids will only eat noodles. Right. Well, they didn't cook them themselves. Right. So once in a while, like I was giving Finn liver and he just didn't want it. And so I went into the fridge and I gave him a venison burger and Josh was like, you're giving up on the liver. I'm like, for venison, it's okay. (laughs) It's like, I'm not giving him a grilled cheese sandwich just yet. Like, you know, it's still an amazing option. And I think six months from now, be, say, I was so cute back then thinking that he would eat whatever I gave him. Right. But we're pretty strict about it. And like when we're with our family and they go and like try and give Finn some of their food, it's like, no, we sit down at the table. He eats with us. He's 11 and a half months old. He'll sit at the table and eat with us. And for now, that's working and we're grateful for it. He only eats sitting at the table with his bowl. He knows it's meal time and snack time and like that. We've sort of trying to raise him that way and we'll see if we can sustain it. I mean, we can sustain it. We'll see if he continues playing along. I don't know. <laughs> You'll find out soon enough. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> totally. So what are some pantry or nutrition essentials that you always have to have on hand? I always have ghee. It's my fourth food group, which is clarified <laughs> butter. And the brand we love, because I'm sure people ask, is Ancient Organics. And we have a ghee mule. So <laughs> we know someone who can get stuff in the States. And so then they bring it to us here. That's cute. We always have, I'm trying to think now. It's like I'm drawing a blank. We have a meat share. So we always have good protein sources in the house. We always have coconut oil. We always have some sort of sprouts sprout. We usually have something fermenting. So we always have like a sauerkraut or a kimchi or pickles ready to go. I don't know if those count as pantry, but we always have that. And then we keep snacks. So we get our snacks. We love the company Om Foods from their Canadian company where you can order a ton of organic nuts and seeds and flowers and different kinds of stuff, all organic and really well-priced. You know, our snack cupboard is jars of hazelnuts and prunes and golden berries. And so we usually have a stocked 
quote snack cupboard. That's awesome. That sounds like a really awesome pantry. And I've seen it before. I'm quite jealous of it. (laughs) And so this really leads into your culinary nutrition program. I mean, you really are like a culinary superstar in the kitchen. So it's only natural that you created this incredible online program. And I would love for you to tell us more about what that program is all about. Absolutely. So my nutrition education started in the kitchen, which was figuring out with this this very restricted list of foods I could and couldn't eat, what I could cook and how I could make it. And that's what inspired me to start cooking. And I really want to share this with other people because at the time, 10 years ago, there was no one teaching people how to cook delicious meals who are on some sort of restricted diet. And it just kept evolving. And so this September will be our 10th run of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program, our seventh time online with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. And it is a 14-week certification program. And our objective is to teach the teachers, teach people how to share this information with those that seek their guidance. So we have students in over 50 countries teaching classes and doing private consults and developing other types of businesses using what they've learned in our program. That's incredible. And I know that people can go check out because you're currently in enrollment right now, right? We are in enrollment. We run the program every September. So registration is open now. That's exciting. So everybody can head on over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to check out the 14-week culinary program. And I do have a private affiliate link promoting Megan's program and definitely stand behind Megan and her work. And I have a bonus for everybody who does want to sign up for one of the three certified levels to her culinary nutrition program. If you sign up for one of those three certified levels, I will personally offer you one hour of business coaching, business and branding coaching, and really help support you in your clarity and getting focused moving forward in your culinary nutrition journey. That's amazing. And our professional level includes business. So having some one-to-one consulting would be so valuable for people who are really ready to do this. Maybe I'll sign up under your affiliate link, Sam. (laughs) That's awesome. I will share all the details and that private affiliate link in the show notes to this episode. So definitely check that out, guys. And so as we wrap this up, where can our audience find you and connect with you? I know you're always hanging out on Instagram. I love seeing your food photos there. Yes. Instagram is probably my social media of choice right now, but I'm at Megan Telpner across social media. I don't think I'm using Twitter right now. I haven't been on it for a while, but on Facebook and Instagram. And my own website is megantelpner.com. And I write a weekly blog there with recipes, troublemaking, different kinds of articles there. And I run a few programs through my own site. And of course, at Culinary Nutrition and culinarynutrition.com is where all of the school action is. And that's where our certification program is. And we have a few other courses and free trainings available over there. So that's where we are. And that's what I do. Awesome. And your blog is incredible. And I will definitely be sure to link up some of the things that you mentioned throughout this podcast, especially with preconception planning. I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes so everybody can check that out. So thank you so much for being here today and sharing your expertise. I know that there's so many women listening that 
really needed to hear this and definitely need to hear from other mothers and you know what's working for them and not working and what that process has all looked like. So thanks for your honesty and for being open with us. Thank you. Thank you. And I think all the moms need to know too that it's exhausting. It's the most challenging thing you will ever do in your whole life. So know that every effort you make is more than enough, that you are more than enough. It's overwhelming and it can be really hard and really isolating. And so just taking the moment to listen to this and get informed and do the best that you can and not ever feel like it's not enough or that you should have done better. That's a useless waste of energy. All we can do is move forward with the knowledge that we have today. Awesome. Thanks so much, girl, for sharing that. appreciate you. Thank you, Sam. No problem. What an amazing interview with Megan. I hope you ladies are going to implement her strategies and suggestions. And of course, for more information on Megan, you can head on over to her website at megantelpner.com. She's also on Instagram at megantelpner. And like I mentioned earlier, for anybody that is interested in joining her culinary nutrition program, I am offering a free one-to-one business coaching session. If you sign up through my affiliate link to join Megan's program, you will get that bonus coaching session with me. And as a nutritionist and as somebody who has worked very hard on building my business and my brand, I know how lonely and scary and overwhelming it can be to get started in the health space. So let me help you. Let me help provide you with the clarity and the direction to move forward and to really create a solid foundation to build your business and brand. So for more information about Megan's program and to join through my affiliate link to get the business coaching session, head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 13. Thank you everybody for tuning in and I'll chat with you guys real soon.